The following is a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hi, and welcome to The Bike Goes On. This is Brian Casey. Sandra, I haven't seen you in a while. You were uh, on a little trip. How did Bonjour. Go? Bonjour. Comment ça va? Uh, ça va bien? Uh, oui, ah, oui. Oui, oui, merci. <laughs> oui, 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 oui. Yeah, now it's great to be back stateside. Um, great trip, and I don't know. I, I did have a beer on the trip, and I only say that because our special guest today is uh, Niall. How do you say your last name? Zachary. Zachary from Mad Fritz Brewery. Well, People know Bonjour. Napa for wine, and that's primarily they know the high-end cabs, but there is a cool craft beer scene going on, and, and as far as I know, is from my own experience, Nile was one of the first ones that I saw that was over there in Napa that was doing super high-quality beers and done sort of with a winemaker's spin on things. Uh, so Nile Zagerly, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great yeah, to see you guys. I'm so glad. How long have we had your beer on tap? I think a couple of years now. Well, I'll never forget uh, oh. when you came to the dinner that we did at Farmstead. Uh, and I think that was 2016, okay. 2015 or 2016. So it was very... happened right after that. Yeah, maybe 2016. And uh, yeah, and you came up to me and you said, I got to have Ooh. your beer at the Girl in the Fig. Yeah, it was amazing. It still is amazing. Thank you. And Jonathan it's, came it's uh, with some yes, friends, uh, and uh, you know, I showed him around and uh, sh- showed him the malt house and the brewery. And uh, I think it's just so great to connect and show people wh- where we are, what we do, and I think that's super critical to understanding the product that we make. Totally. Yeah, you guys are using, I mean, mostly if not all locally sourced products, water, grains. Um, additions, the cool things like honey that you add to some of the beers, um, and you just—how long ago was it that you opened up the the tap room or taste room? Ooh, I think we should step back further. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the tap room about a year now, almost okay, a full yeah. year. Very yeah, exciting. Yeah. You want to go back to winemaking? I want to go back to it was evolution. No. Um, yeah, you were a winemaker. Still is. Still is a winemaker. Yeah. But, but okay, let's start with your career. Like, oh. where did you hit something in a bottle? Yeah, gosh. After um, well, where'd you grow up? Uh, oh, boy. You guys are really, we're going yeah, back we're in time. we're in depth. <laughs> <laughs> well, pre-Cambrian era. No. Um, <laughs> exactly. Uh, <clears throat> I grew up in the Bay Area, uh, Marin County. And uh, my mother was an artist. My father was a, a doctor, a kidney specialist. Uh, he, my parents divorced in the kind of mid, late 70s, and uh, he married a Napa girl. And so I never really lived in Napa, but I kind of went back and forth and ended up making wine with my dad, you know, during the harvest a couple times, you know, when, when I was a kid. But eventually he moved to Hawaii, and I ended up going to high school in Hawaii. Interesting. Uh, Which island? Uh, on Oahu. How, how many people on the show have, like, you guys connect your Hawaii thing? Have some sort of Hawaiian connection. Yeah, like, well, who doesn't want to live in Hawaii? Even I, I lived I on Maui for a few years, and everyone, when they'd come visit, they'd say, we're going home, we're going to sell our stuff, and we're going to be back in a month. That's <laughs> hilarious. And I, yeah. Two percent of the people would actually mm-hmm. do it. But, it. but it seems like a pipe dream for, you know, a lot of people that's mm-hmm. that's a desi- it, it's desirable. an interesting place to live I, I think you're either an islander or you're a mainlander I'm definitely a mainlander 
Um, but I, you know, I enjoy going to the islands. It's just, I, I give me a seven to 10 days and I'm kind of like, all right, right. cool, done. Yeah. Right. Gotta go. That's like my wife too. I think, are you sort of an A-type personality? Uh, would you consider yourself or would other people consider you? Oh gosh. I mean, Highly you organized, get called all right? kinds of things, right? Uh, <laughs> so I definitely am detail oriented. It's funny how yeah. you perceive yourself in certain right. way. We all perceive ourselves a certain way. And then other people are observing you going like, yeah, you're pretty OCD, dude. You know? um, I like to call myself OCBD, obsessive compulsive brewing disorder. Oh, um, I love that. But, uh, um, but uh, there's definitely some winemaking involved too. But yeah, in general, uh, yeah. It's, I think with the brewing side, even with winemaking, it's, it's, I like to be fairly meticulous with notes. And, uh, and I think it just, even if I don't go back to those notes, I, I do eventually, mm-hmm. spe- specifically with wine uh, and beer. But um, it, you do find that if you don't take those notes, your memory just, you know, you forget right. stuff and you don't know what happened. And, and so... Um, and that's part of the process of kind of observing, let's say, grapes growing and knowing what to do when. And, you know, I think that that's, if you kind of just wing it and go, oh, the grapes are ripe, they taste good, and you bring it in, and you almost forget what happened. Right. Um, so I think there's an element to that. There's so many, like you said, styles uh, that people have and different approaches. And, and I think my style has evolved to be pretty detail oriented even though there's also an element of letting go and not being like well these numbers say this you have to be kind of it's like cooking and and uh, I think having a kind of artful open mind but also be kind of watching you know watching watching things happen so Hawaii I mean you were in school there young though yeah uh, eighth grade through high school, mm-hmm. and then I, I went to community college in Santa Cruz, so I kind of, oh, mm-hmm. uh, Cabrillo. Went from one beach to another. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. It would seem like the comfortable transition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that must have been tough, though, because I know from living there, being a Howley kid, especially not oh, you're not Howley, there, Rob. Having, having shown up <laughs> in like eighth grade or something, that must have been tough, though. Yeah, no, I definitely had uh, incidences where I was chased or uh, beat up or, you know, kind of, you know, just wrong place, wrong, right place, right time, (laughs) but wrong, (laughs) really all wrong. Uh, But, um, and it's also, you know, you're so much more vulnerable than as an adult, it's obviously your perspective and Mm -hmm. kind of how you handle those situations might be a bit different. But um, yeah, uh, I mean, you don't, you seem like you'd fit right in. I mean, well, I think I he's found a darker, yeah, darker yeah. complexion. You don't seem that Howley. Yeah, mo- I I think when you're living in Hawaii, most of it has to do with the feel that people get about you, and mm-hmm. and they sort of keep a distance until they get a feel for you and see if you're a genuine person, mm-hmm. and then they'll sort of snuggle up to you a bit. But mm-hmm. other than that, um, yeah, they're just it's just a different life. So that's that's why I was asking about you know. I know you are fairly meticulous and detail-oriented, and my wife is as well, and it, I think it would drive her insane to live in Hawaii, because there is actually such a thing as Hawaii time and yes. Hawaiian a more laid-back attitude. And when you're doing things like brewing beer, where you have a lower alcohol level, mm-hmm. the cleanliness that you just mm-hmm. have to have when brewing beer, I mean, you have to be meticulous, don't you? Yes, you, you do. Um, I mean... 
there's all different types of approaches. Right, right. <laughs> and you'll see them. Um, and sometimes it just comes down to, you know, the space you have to work with. And, but you're right about Hawaii time. It is definitely like, you you know, you, if we're at 10 right now, just at the momentum and things we do, it's like you got to dial yourself back to 5 and just like mm-hmm. really put your feet up a little bit because right. things aren't going to happen very fast pill. there. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... High school. High and, school, and then Santa, Santa Cruz. Cruz, and then it was there that I kind of, I had started brewing beer with my dad in Hawaii, and it, and actually the first beer I had was North Coast Brewing Company wow. out in Mendocino with oh. my dad, and the bartender let me have a few little tastes with okay. my dad uh-huh. present, and this was, I don't know, 88 or something like that, 89, um, and uh, and then that kind of spurred on this kind of father-son project back in Hawaii. And then when I went off to college, I thought, well, I'm just going to take these recipes and keep doing this. Mm-hmm. And uh, in Santa Cruz, there is a place, I forgot what street it was, there's a va- vacuum homebrew supply store. Yeah. So imagine that uh, yeah. combination, I guess, you know, a means to an end or something, I don't yeah. know, or to run a Tubes. business. Tubes, yeah. More <laughs> <laughs> bags. Right. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, yeah, so uh, I used to go in there. I was, you know, 19, 20. Mm-hmm. You know, they wouldn't card me. I was just buying sugar. Um, right. So I just kept making beer um, until, you know, I, I decided I wanted to go to Davis and study brewing. So I went from an art student to, a, you know, a science student and, and had to, to make that transition. And that's what Cabrillo was really beneficial because I could take all those, you know, prerequisites and then transfer to UC Davis to study brewing. And... Uh, so that's kind of, and that's why I got to Davis was I was intent on brewing beer, mm-hmm. and that and once I got there I was like wow man this wine department's pretty cool too, and that opened up my mind to just this whole other er- area of fermentation mm-hmm. science and the, just how much more um, there was there for viticulture and enology in contrast to the brewing the brewing program had been there since the I believe the mid 70s I didn't know that I didn't either. I didn't know I mean because I was wondering when you have a degree in fermentation if that specifically covers either wine or beer or does or that kimchi. process yeah, uh, kimchi, or yeah. kombucha or does that cover a spectrum yeah you know uh, it's unfortunate that when I was there those those probably would be more food um, right. food science categories mm-hmm. but I, I think that and the, the idea conceptually with the fermentation science uh, you know bachelor degree was that you could do pharmaceutical fermentation. It was kind of uh, ge- trying. It was trying to gear you toward or bio biomedical, you know. Um, so you could kind of pick all these things. So they were trying to give this really broad spectrum. Like, okay, we need to make a degree that it, you know offers all this, you know, diversity. Um, but at the core was viticulture and enology, mm-hmm. and then the brewing department was in the food science department. So I actually okay. had to transfer, uh, but I, then I, yeah, I kind of went back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, That's yeah, funny. I think most people get in, are sort of go to Davis for wine, and then I think they discover that beer is a very pleasant thing to drink uh, at harvest. You kind of went in for beer and then discovered wine. Yes, isn't that funny? <laughs> Yeah, I'll never back, for, when, well and now back to beer but doing both yes yes I mean I I remember specifically being interviewed right after college and I was kind of had both beer and wine on the resume mm-hmm. and you know this winemaker said well Niall you got to figure out what you want to do you know and, and I'm like oh I think I can do them both and yes. they're like no you can only do one it's just no. like no I think 
I've, Good I've, for you. I've proved first, that wrong. Yeah, you did. <laughs> you did. I think, um, well, that must be part of the reason I think your artist part is probably one of the things that I was really attracted to on flavor. Obviously, and we can talk about your packaging because I think your packaging is genius. Yeah. Um, and your development of flavor and balance and you know it's a it's a recipe so i guess you know for me it's like you're you know i guess i asked before are you a farmer a brewer or a chef yeah or a winemaker i gotta add that yeah i would push that i mean i would also kind of answer that question by asking you you know the question it's kind of like there is a recipe to brewing but as a chef when you're cooking you do follow the recipe but there's also clues or cues that you get from what you're cooking that tell you that's like, immediate yeah and you're like you know what i'm not going to use that much of that herb or i'm going to kind of do this or i'm going to do that or you know i think i'm going to prep it this way this time and those little process changes or ingredient shifts that are intuitive mm-hmm. i mean wouldn't you agree that that is an element totally. to how you cook totally i mean i think all great chefs totally. and i mean there's a science there i mean I would have no problem with the intuitive part of cooking, but I have a huge, I'm not a good science person. And that's really why I never, well, it's one of the reasons I never committed to being full kitchen. But you guys are talking about it like, here's the the real difference is that cooking, you're tweaking something on the stovetop at one day. You can stick your finger in it, taste it, and see what it's like. Right. When you're sticking 22 pounds of honey and you're doing the the bear and the bees like how do you decide first of all that that's the right amount and then you can't really tell until it's a finished product right so it's got to be a lot of trial and error and that particular beer that you're referencing the bear and the bees all named after aesop's fables is with two different sources of napa honey and uh when i first did made that created that beer um it, it was definitely you know you're you're kind of already know your craft enough to be like, well, I think I need to get this in there. And so you get it in there. And so I could kind of look at the numbers a little bit, but flavor wise, you're, you're relying on those raw materials to really speak. And then you're also going, well, how do I make sure that this honey that I've spent an incredible amount of money on so you don't do a small batch like a test batch no does anybody do that yes many breweries do and having these small pilot breweries Mm -hmm. are quite critical i think Mm -hmm. in recipe development i really i mean it's interesting because i've had some people ask me more you know questions about kind of what i do or when i'm trying to describe it i also kind of find myself you know, even more so being so clear about the fact that products we're making, it isn't like we're going to brew the same beer again, but it's always going to be different. And, and just letting go a little bit and being like, it's all going to be good and delicious Mm -hmm. and it's going to be similar to what you had before, but there's going to be a new personality there and that you kind of have to just go for it. Have you ever like tossed out? Yes. So, I mean, that's a risk, but, but I guess with that, you're also small, limited production on each different recipe, right? Exactly. And, and that's a good uh, way of knowing that, okay, I've, it's not a lot of beer. It's, it is a risk. Right. But typically they go tr- bankrupt. Th- yeah. It's, it's a, it's probably 95% going to work out. 
mm-hmm. pretty much. That's and, and so, very good odds. Yeah. <laughs> not, um, not restaurant odds. Well, and the good thing is that I've built, or we've built the clientele, and I think you guys would agree that as consumers of the product, you understand that you're like, well, we're getting, I'm going to get a really, delivered a really good product here, and it's going to be different. And just accepting that. It's like a vintage thing. It's knowing that when you buy, you know, a Cabernet or a Pinot or a Chard from one vineyard, uh, or one winery, and then the next finish is going to be a little different. Right. And, and that's you, actually to enjoy that. Exactly. And you can't go into drinking your beers with any kind of expectation as a beer drinker. You can't go, oh, this is what I'm going to expect when I taste this. Because, I mean, personally, I'm really not a beer drinker. Mm-hmm. And I fell in love with your beers that night. I mean, I just, it was, they were, they're complex and they're interesting and... You know, it did bring me back to a wine tasting experience and, you know, it elevates beer. I mean, and I think California in general right now, our microbrew, where everyone's elevating it to a degree. I mean, I remember, and this is like so off track, but when I was in high school, I, my father was considering buying Schmidt's Brewery. Wow. <laughs> do, do you even recall that name? Schmitz. It's in it was in Philadelphia, Hugh Mungo Factory, Union House. Mm. And it never happened, which I don't I didn't care one way or the other, but I was a photographer and so I was able to shoot like this black and white series of being in this brewery while it was operating. Do you still have these pictures? I can't I've lost this huge chunk oh, of something over yeah, but it's but it was interesting. But my perception growing up, I mean, I guess I could re- relate that to the old Paps Blue Ribbon. I mean, mm-hmm. Schmitz, Schlitz, yeah, you know, PBR. One of those real and original, really, regional, yeah, original, and, regional, and different reasons for making the maximum amount of beer that they would make at that time in that commercial. You know, terroir was not involved in that conversation. Yeah. Well, now, have you guys seen that commercial? I just saw it in the last couple of weeks, I, and it's a Carlsberg, Jarlsberg beer, Carlsberg, I think. Yeah, which I, I, the I don't blue, think green I've label. Ever seen? It's the non-alcoholic. No, no, it's a. Um, I've just never seen a commercial for their beer before, but they, this recent commercial has, like a petri dish that's hooked up to you know a bunch of different electrodes, and it says it used to take us years to figure out new flavors in beer. Now we can do it in seconds. It's like Why is that taking, a good marketing tool? Well, the, yeah. this Who I'm wants to look at a petri dish? The industry has changed. <laughs> this is a huge corporation that yeah. now is trying to tweak their beers, and it seems like that, you know, just like when organic started, and and it was a it was a farm to table slow food thing, and then you know as soon as craft macaroni starts making organic macaroni and cheese, you know that they're sort of seeing the the benefit and the value of right. going into that into that and you can see that with the the larger beer companies even Budweiser right now has a commercial that has those old style beers I mean it might be the same beer that they always sell right. but it's in a cool little like uh, yeah, old, old, old time they gotta bottle. get their market back right you know? because how I do think you they, do it they lost to, a lot of yeah. uh, market yeah, share yeah they continue to, to lose and I mean we're we're far from an ankle biter I mean we're an ant um, <laughs> but uh, you know the regionals that have come up I mean Sierra Nevada is still quite a powerhouse nationally mm-hmm. which is great to see it's like but it, we all know 
from how competitive it is now, like how many, how saturated, I guess you should say, it's not that competitive because if you differentiate yourself well, it's not, there is no competition uh, to a certain degree. Um, I mean, of course, beer is still beer and, you know, consumers were going to choose different products. Um, but uh, I would like to say our beer is uh, a kind of a separate category almost, I call it origin beer, but it was, I was listening to, um, one of your podcasts about uh, the cheese and about the slow food, and I thought, you know what? Hashtag, you know, slow beer. You know, right. like, hey, yeah. aren't we? We're kind of. If totally. this beer takes, totally. you know, uh, between it's three months in barrel, two weeks to carbonate. I mean, most beers are produced and carbonated and shipped in two weeks. The time it takes wow. us just to carbonate our beer. Um, so it's, you know, there are other breweries, obviously going after or producing beers that take time or barrel aging but um, yeah I mean I think that that's really where we come in is that yeah there are a lot of breweries they're now over 7,000 there could we're wow. probably gonna head towards 10,000 uh, no or in, in nationwide nationwide yeah. yeah so just because of my ignorance about beer and I've never I should know this but I don't but what is the basic process for making beer now, you don't have to go into detail, but like step one is. Yeah, actually, you know what I might do is I'll, we have one of the bottles I brought you is the Napa Ale. <clears throat> and it has a dragon on it, uh, the Ouroboros dragon, uh, you know, kind of talking mm -hmm. about kind of how is nature it? is constantly yeah. uh, creating and destroying itself. So it's a very old alchemistic, mm -hmm. you know, uh, idea. Um, and so this beer, to produce this beer, this is a single origin beer, meaning it was grown, malted, and brewed within a 20, 30 mile radius. Wow. Um, mm. And really no one has produced a single origin beer uh, that I know of. I mean, there are other people that are growing and malting, um, but, uh, you know, kind of that was something we wanted to break that that barrier down and say like we can if we're an origin brewery like what's the you know what's our piece de resistance you know right. it's it is that you know I'm to getting to a single farmland. origin uh beer so we've worked with local farmers to grow barley including the fisher family that had open open land that we planted and as early as 1415 we planted barley we weren't able to malt it so the brewing process in general is that, you know, you grow your barley, um, and those are really, the barley's going to be the grapes of the beer. Mm -hmm. You're going to convert so bar, into so malt. So barley kind of equals grapes. Yeah, pretty much. And, and so, what does it look like when it's growing? Um, they, it looks like uh, a grass. Um, there's a, a main shaft. Uh, there's six row and two row, which are kind of like how the actual kernels or seeds line up. Oh. Um, so obviously six row would have, you know, uh, six heads, six seeds, making kind of more of a, a bigger, bigger head to the. Uh, and you just use those seeds, or you use seeds. the whole thing? No, you just use this, the the seeds, the barley itself. So you come through with a combine. So when we harvested this barley that was grown at Trefeffin Vineyards in 2018. Um, we wait until about usually July, late July, we can start harvesting. Depends on when you plant the barley. Um, and then it dries out in the, um, out in the field. Okay, and so this is like, uh, who, who are we talking to with, uh, with the beans? Uh, with Steve yeah, Sandoz. Sandoz. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so, so you go through and you cut them down and then they just sit there and they dry out. No, we, no, you actually, the combine will 
clean the barley from the stalk and then discharge kind of a, a, a straw, a barley straw. So you could come back and harvest the straw or collect the straw and use that, and use that for, yeah, usually bedding. Um, yeah, so okay. it's interesting how you start, like we started growing barley and we really didn't know what we we're doing. Like we know how to grow grapes and we know right. how to plant our cover crops and all that and get, you know, take care of our soil organically, but we hadn't really grown grain before. So the way beer is made is it starts with the barley. So you got to do that, mm -hmm. right? So we grew the barley, then you harvest the barley, goes through the combine, then you clean it if you have to. Sometimes it can come off the field. If the field's really clean, the barley will come out of the combine quite clean too. Um, then you take the barley um, and then you go through the malting process. And so we're talking about beer is made with malted barley, hops, water, and yeast, right? That's what makes beer. So we're taking, we're on this kind of barley tr track right now. Where we're going to take that barley, we're going to germinate it, and then, which means, and sprout it. And then we're going to... And then that's why it's called melted? Yeah, malting is basically the sprouting, the sprouting of a seed. of a seed. Yeah, so we... I'm learning so much. Well, yeah, because malting, you think of... I thought it was I like a toasting or something. <laughs> right, I thought it was like a toasting or something like that. Okay, so it's yeah. just a sprouting. Well, there is some kilning. You have to kiln it. So you're, you're going to take, you know, it's, imagine you're going to plant a garden, you know. It's mm -hmm. like you're going to sprout these seeds, and then you're going to put them in your, yeah, in your seed bed, right, mm -hmm. and get them going. Um, in the case of malt, malting barley or malting, uh, we have a gluten-free IPA we made with malted millet and malted buckwheat. Fabulous. And to make, like, just a awesome gluten-free beer that's zero, 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 not a drop of gluten. Are you listening to this? Has, yeah, my wife oh. has celiacs, and in the past it's been, what, sorghum is what mm -hmm. I think a lot of the commercial places yes. were using, but a, a lot of the beers were, when they first came out as gluten-free, said gluten-free, and then they realized that they actually weren't gluten-free, so then they had to sort of relabel um, yeah, because they weren't 100%. They're using... An, they're using uh, exogenous enzymes or they're adding an enzyme to the beer so they're um, stripping it. and it changes the chemical structure of the gluten molecule and so if you're a true celiac you know full-blown you will not be able to drink those kind of omission beers or those right. gluten reduced right. is what right. they're called yeah. even though they say it's less than 20 parts per million um, it, it's and, and in fact that's the that's the resolution of uh, of the instruments to test for gluten. Um, one of the labs in, in St. Helena, ETS, tested our beer, and they can go down to 10, but the methodology is a standardized mm -hmm. methodology so that you know everyone's playing on the same field. But even if the gluten numbers are down, that doesn't mean you don't have these like gluten-like molecules floating around that could, could set off an allergic reaction. Right. And so that's why I was like, well, if we're gonna do this, we're, we're gonna Let's go all it. the way which means right. not one drop of that beer has touched anything with gluten in it. So it's zero, zero, zero. Even though it you know, tests zero or it tests less right. than 20, there's, just, there's nothing floating around. There's no enzymes in it. It's just it's, it's the real it's deal. Real um, so, so you sprout the seeds. You sprout the seeds. So the malting process is germinating the barley seed and then kilning it. How long does it. that take? About two weeks? So yeah, we started, uh, we started growing barley in 14, 15. 15 was our first harvest. And it wasn't until uh, December of 16 that we had acquired a small malting system, mm. and which is really this kind of kiln, a steep tank. So um, putting the grain into a, a hop, uh, a tank, and then bubbling oxygen into it or air, 
trying to activate the embryo and then kind of rinsing it, rinsing that mm -hmm. water through. Eventually it starts to sprout or chit, it's called. So right before the rootlets come out, there's a little chit that pops out. And that's the indicator It says, okay, now it can go on the floor. So we sanitize the floor and we do floor malting. So then you lay it on the floor and you turn it. So the steeping time is usually about two days. Then the, the germination on the floor is usually about two, three days. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, then the kilning process. So you're taking the barley from, let's say, 8 or 9% moisture or 11% moisture, bringing it up to 45% moisture while it's germinating. And then you're going to put it in the kiln and bring it down to 5% moisture. And in the process of doing that, you've activated this embryo, which is starting to grow. And um, in a, so that's kind of the Ouroboros, like nature has begun. You know, mm -hmm. you've harvested this barley from, mm -hmm. from the ground and now you're going to activate life. And so life begins. I and love this whole vocabulary. Right. It's really cool. All well, these that's new words. you get some of those fresh flavors in the beers of yours. It's it's that it's that almost green vegetable. There's something is mm -hmm. a freshness to it. Mm -hmm. that I think uh, when you taste this Napa ale, it's um, I call it. Sometimes there's a cucumber, like oh. fresh right, cucumber right. flavor that comes out mm -hmm. of this one, and that is that fresh germination smell. When you walk mm -hmm. into the room, you smell the barley on the ground germinating mm -hmm. it smells like fresh cucumber and there's this just yeah there's wow. an immense freshness to it mm -hmm. um, and so you're taking this embryo you're letting it grow but while it's growing it's creating enzymes mm -hmm. and it's also uh, breaking down this starchy cell wall that it has storage you know packets got mm -hmm. there so it can grow as a plant before that first shoot goes out and starts gathering light mm -hmm. um, so what we're doing as maltsters is we're allowing that process to happen and then we're cutting it off by kilning it but we're we're slowing it down and deactivating this embryo's growth like it, we're really kind of killing it so here right. comes the death part sorry right. um not yeah <laughs> <laughs> poor little shoot oh, no. uh and then so and there's a lot of them too um so then we kiln it but we do it at very low temperatures with high volumes of air and then we turn it by hand. Um, there are obviously larger machines that mm -hmm. can do this, and, and, but our system's very hand-driven uh, mm -hmm. hand uh, and very analog. So you've um, touched every drop of yeah, that people Yeah, there's, uh, that's a good point. someone turning a handle. Yeah. I love it. I'm like thinking of the riddling of a champagne bottle. Yeah. It's like right. uh, there's a few little funny videos of me shoveling and turning it uh, uh -huh. on Instagram at oh, high speed. Okay. You know, it takes about 10 minutes to turn mm -hmm. the, so I do that about every six to eight hours. Anyway, once you, once you've deactivated this barley um, sprout, it's now technically malt, but as long as you don't get the temperature too warm, you'll retain all these natural enzymes that the barley uh, sprout had created. And we're going to use those in the brewing process. So now you take this barley, this, this malted barley, you clean the rootlets off because it's little dried rootlets because you don't want that in the beer. Um, and then you take the barley, the malted barley, and then you mill it. And you mill it to retain that kind of husk that has gone on the outside but crushing that starchy, um, starchy core. Mm -hmm. And so now you have kind of a flower that it looks kind of like polenta almost. Mm -hmm. But then you've got these husks that float around and the husk will act as a filter once you, you mash or add water to it. So the next step is milling, then mashing. And so you mix a certain amount of water with the malted barley that's been milled 
Um, it's called your grist. Um, Seriously, a lot right. of words. Yeah. Well, well and I, I kind of want to stop there because I want to talk about water. Yes. Yeah. You guys have a lot of different water sources, and how did you get those relationships? And how does that all work? Do you, I mean, are you knocking on someone's door saying, "Hey, I heard you got a well. We'd like to pull a truck up, maybe once every That's how it started. Fill it up." That's how it started for sure. And then you know you start playing with the different waters, and then. Um, then you're like, hmm, I wonder about this well over here or that spring over there. Like, let me taste that one. Like, the, there's a spring um, uh, in the Welling Vineyard we use quite a lot, which is some of the heaviest water in the valley, and that, what that the mean? hardest water. Okay. Um, means there's a, a large concentration of uh, mineral ions in there. Okay. Um, in that particular water, mainly magnesium um, and some calcium. Uh, and then the softest water in Napa Valley is actually from the mountains, typically. Um, and we found one uh, going into Pope Valley. Pope Valley's got incredibly uh, soft water that comes out of the spring on the backside going into from Howell Mountain. So the kind of Mayakamas, or the Vacas Range, the eastern mountains, as you're going down into Pope Valley, there's a spring that comes out. That's the softest water in Napa Valley. So we've, you know, you find these springs and wells, and then you kind of go, oh, hey, um, who lives there, and who lives yeah. there, and who has easements, and let me, you know, oh, that's so and so. Oh, Robbie, did you say you have to test it? You test. Oh the, yeah, yeah, test. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not worried about uh, the microbial load. Typically, mm -hmm. you know, these are drinking waters. These are right. people that, you know, people are drinking this water, and yeah, there's going to be some, you know, natural, you know, waterborne bacteria. But um, it, it's just been kind of fun to experience mm -hmm. water uh, directly like that. And that's been kind of, again, the origin beer approach is to take these natural springs and waters and wells and do not adjust the minerality. So what happens in the mashing process is you have, and I'm glad you asked this question because water is pretty critical. Yeah. And what it does is when that water, the ions that are in the water, uh, like calcium, magnesium, sulfate, chloride, and are floating around in that water, when they make contact with the ions that are in the malt, because the malt itself has all these you know, minerals in it too. Um, and uh, just from the barley growing and pulling it from the ground. And um, that's where you start seeing, like, God, everything's kind of connected. Reactions start taking place. Mm -hmm. The phosphate reacts with the calcium and starts to drop out and releases hydrogen protons, which brings the pH or the acidity of the mash that you're, you're kind of steeping this grain and water matrix, which is kind of a, a stew at about 150 degrees Fahrenheit, um, it, you know, it starts buffering and changing the acidity of it. And so all of a sudden you hit this like perfect little uh, pH point is where you need to hit. And so some brewers will add minerals mm -hmm. to the water, the mash water um, or the brewing water, uh, the brewing liquor. Um, and that will change get, the reaction. Where do you get that? Where do you just buy minerals to put into water? You know, it's calcium, it's gypsum, it's lime, it's um, it's calcium chloride. Go to the quarry. I mean, you can you could you know it's Epsom salts. I mean, mm -hmm. these are all different um, stabilized salts. And, and do they they teach you that in school? Yes, they do. Um, and you'll that, so water chemistry is super critical to optimizing the brewing process. So what typically is done is you're adding minerals to get the pH where you want it and that allows the enzymes that are naturally present to work super effectively to break those starches into fermentable sugars. Mm -hmm. And so depending on what pH 
or acidity level, that mash, uh, the, the grain and the water matrix is the malted barley and the grain uh, matrix is sitting at, um, and what temperature determines which enzymes will do what and how. Wow. And that'll determine the fermentability of the, the finished beer um, and or the dryness of the finished beer. And that's something that, as a winemaker, I really like dry beers. Mm -hmm. um, I don't like sweet beers. I don't mm -hmm. like a bunch of complex carbohydrates in my beer, regardless right. of style. Right. So if a style says, well, it's got to have so many, you know, um, uh, so much <coughs> density in the finished beer, I kind of poo-poo that and say, look, I want as dry as I can get it. I don't care. I, mm -hmm. I want a crisp, dry beer. And so we mash at lower temperatures. Uh, we don't add minerals. And the idea is to leave the water fingerprint as it is so we can see those differences mm -hmm. so when we deliver a different let's say golden strong ale to you ones with david arthur water and then ones with um from saint Helena reservoir water so and do you map all this stuff like have a map like put little pins on it Mm, you mean that would no? Kind of cool to have like a map. That would like be kind of neat. You know, the water was from here, the crane was from here. Yeah, that's a good idea. That'd be something fun for the tap room. That'd be cool. Yeah. Um, just if you ever need another career, mm -hmm. you would be a great beer teacher. Oh, seriously, don't you think? <laughs> It's, I, I don't know. It, no, it's, I mean, it's I'm fun. learning Thank so you. much. I don't know if I'll retain any of it. I'll look back She's taking notes. notes. You will be tested it's at the end of this no, podcast. No, no. It's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, seriously. Well, and we're just sort of starting to learn about all this stuff, too. I mean, it's, it's not until recently that I can drive down the freeway and see hops growing on the side right. of the freeway. Like, I mean, that just wasn't a thing before. Did we say when the hops go in? We're getting there, and in fact, that's another good point because the whole idea behind Origin Beer and this kind of local brewing concept is that, okay, how do you make a single Origin Beer? Well, you got to get all these ingredients together locally, place, right. and so one of the kind of, a lot of people have been able to grow barley and hops, and they have a brewery, but they don't have a combine, or it's just there's, or they don't have a malt house, you know, so all of a sudden, it's really gotta hard to make, it somewhere else. you got to take it somewhere else, or, so it's, those have been roadblocks in making these single origin mm. beers. It's not just like, oh, I got a brewery, and well, you got to have a malt house too. Then you got to mm. grow the barley, then you got to harvest it, and so you got to go through all those steps before you actually get to the brewing part. Mm. And that's why most breweries they don't malt because it costs too much money, takes too much space, and they're in the business of making beer. Yeah. And you know, so we wanted to look at beer quite a bit differently and say, like, we're going right to the where the ingredients are grown and. And, and that's why every beer lists the origin of the ingredients is the idea is that, okay, well, the hops came from here, the barley came from here, this is the variety. Mm -hmm. All these things make a difference. Yeah. If you just blend everything together, what's going to be the biggest difference in that product? The recipe, the process, and the branding. And what happens in that scenario is that all the products start to taste the same because everyone's, you know, getting from the same, you know, if you're a kitchen and everyone got the same supplied foods that were all kind of blended uh, for consistency re reasons and quality and efficiency and all that, all the food would start to taste the same. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't kind of break that down and say, well, I actually want my lamb from over here because it's eating this grass and I want mm -hmm. my cheese from over there because these the ocean, yeah, bingo. And mm -hmm. so that's where it was like, yeah, uh, it's funny because it, it's kind of like a farm to table sort of, you know, totally. movement. 
and it seems super rudimentary but everyone's been making these commodity driven beers for so long that you know they're chasing after what's the new cool style of beer that everyone's drinking okay i'm gonna make my hazy ipa because that's what everyone wants and and so and then it'll change to something else and then it'll be something else and uh, versus like hey let's just make really good beer um so the hop part um has been easier because there's um uh it's called gosh darn it i'm gonna um it's it's the Sonoma, there's the Sonoma Hop Growers Alliance, and it's, um, there's a group of, of brewers and hop growers and farmers that started this, you know, uh, collection of hop growers, and it's awesome, and we've been using these local Sonoma hops Do you know and Napa. Gary from, um, from Campo Vida? They have oh, hops. Oh, Gary Breen. Uh, uh, I don't know. Yeah, they grow hops up in, in uh, Hopland. Oh, do they? Are they in Hopland? They're in Hopland. It's, it was the yep. old uh, Fetzer property. Okay, I need to talk to him because this is a Napa ale. Mm-hmm. I've done a Sonoma ale mm-hmm. with the front porch barley. I still need, I need a farmer in yeah. Sonoma growing barley yeah. so oh, we I'll, can... I'll introduce you We guys. just need like five to ten acres. You know, we don't need much. Um, and then Mendocino, we've, you know, I've got a grower who uh, dug... Um, uh, uh, gosh darn it... Um, the Mendocino Grain Project, they've been growing barley for mm-hmm. us. And so we've got Mendocino barley, but we don't have Mendocino right. hops to make okay. our single origin oh. Mendocino yeah. beer. So that's been kind of one of my goals is to kind of hit all these counties that surround mm-hmm. us because I figure it's accessible. Once you kind of tap into this farming community, right. they're like, well, hey, I'll grow for you. Or, hey, I'll do this yeah. and I'll do that. And, and you pay top dollar for it. But then yeah. you're making... Your yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I'm wondering. What it, it, can farmers actually make m- money growing barley and hops right now? I think the barley, you're going to have to grow quite a bit. Uh-huh. And then you're going to have to, it's it's a little bit, for what we do, it's so small that it's like, hey, you got an open parcel, you know, you're, you're seeding anyway, or you, you just want to do it. Um, you know, we'll certainly pay for labor and stuff like that. And we'll probably have to bring the combine in and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it costs us money to get that done. Um, but you know we're not out there to sell malt or grow really big right. um, it's it's more small niche local specific sites that's what I'd prefer to do right. um, and really challenging uh, us and bringing the consumer or the customer along for the ride to experience all these crazy flavors that we get mm-hmm. from these different sites and these different grains um, and so that's 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 what's so been super exciting yeah fascinating because in france we were in hermitage and we went to the cov de Tain, which is at mm-hmm. the base of the hermitage hill or mountain or whatever and we tasted 12 or 14 different wines from the different soils specifically that wow. was the tasting Awesome. Tasting red wine, this was the soil that it came from. And they're a huge co-op. They've got a couple, I don't know how many farmers, they bring them in, the grapes in, and they sort them up, and they do that. But it was a fascinating, because your focus was on soil. And we know? all know it makes and a difference. Slate and you know, and then why is there still people that just don't want to talk about terroir? I think Sean Thackeray is one of the 
most famous ones, local winemaker here that doesn't that? really believe in terroir, and a lot of his wines he'll mix. You know, it'll just say California and because he'll be taking fruit from all different places and just put it together. But there's some people that just don't believe in terroir. But I, I think, think it's okay though to have the, a variety. Yeah, but I, I mean, the more you drink and you start to experience those things, mm. you, you, you buy into it. it. It's an easy thing to mm-hmm. to understand. Um, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. yeah, terroir is definitely, it's a term that gets both misused, um, uh, I wouldn't say abused, but kind of used incorrectly, <coughs> or mark, like it kind of gets a little markety. Some yeah. people right. are kind of picking right. that ball up and running with it as kind of a marketing thing. I'm, I guess, and, and I also feel that we probably, the three of us, probably have different definitions for what terroir is mm-hmm. or what we feel it is. Because I, I think it's definitely <clears throat> some, excuse well, me. Well, let's find out. Yeah. I think it is, since I'm a lady, I go first. Okay. Sense of place. <laughs> That's pretty broad. Does it include the, the does it include the the hand of of the human in, in, in terroir? Or is it only? No, it. I just think it's really the land. I think it's the land, the sense of the place from the land, nature's given area, and then mm-hmm. I think the the next level is when man comes in. Mm. You know. So, what does that mean if you have someone that's working here from South America? And they start working in your terroir. Mm-hmm. Is it no longer an origin? Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. So, what's your good point? I, you know, I think primarily of, of soil type, and then I think of climate conditions. I mean, if you're four miles That's off really the coast, then you're definitely going to see, you know, fog. I think would definitely be mm-hmm. something that has to do with terroir. I don't think of it in terms of man, but I can see how. I mean, dropping fruit, is that a terroir thing? Is that something maybe you have to drop fruit in that region? And so then it is maybe a product of terroir because that's the way to grow those grapes best in that region. I mean, yeah, I guess guess we all do have a little... What's yours? Yeah, it's it's definitely a sense of place. So what is that flavor? And then how do we as humans allow to cull that out of that product that we're, you know, it's from, you know, that's a result of that growing process, right? So how do we get that out without impacting it, you know, too much? Right. Um, I think is probably the coaxing, I like to use that word. Right. And that, <clears throat> over the years I've been making wine, which is about 24 years and 12 years up at David Arthur farming those grapes, as well as making the wines, I still feel like it's this kind of, and we're organically farming and everything, or organ, it's just wonderful, healthy inputs. You still feel like, God, terroir, it's like, it's kind of this, it's kind right. of that. It does, right. It's hard to put your finger on it sometimes. It's not we're like We're kind a, of on the same path. Yeah. We it, kind of agree. It's climactical, it's soil, mm-hmm. and then, yeah, so it's, it's really a, a wonderful thing. And that's why when you see it kind of get abused or, right. uh, like, what I don't think... I feel like it's, I don't feel like, some people say, oh, the, I have this wild yeast that ferments this beer or this wine or something, and that's, that's the terroir. And I think, yeah, you know, that's just, 
it's, just a little piece of it. I think it's just a little piece of it, yeah, it, as as well, because it's really about the raw material that got fermented. Right. And, it, and like, how about the year of the wildfires? You know, that's like a 2017 terroir. Yeah. Which can be different. The weather climate changes, then, you know, you have a different terroir. You could taste five things from the same exact place. They're not going to taste exactly the same. I mean, for the same recipe. Yes. And we see that more in wine all the time. So we did the hop. Did we do the hops yet? Uh, so what you do is you mash the grains. So the starches guys, are converted. I hope we're oh. not confusing our listeners too yeah, much. Yeah, we're hopping around <laughs> Stay here. with us. Stay with no, us. No, this is good. I think a lot of people are fascinated by this because even even me, I've made beer at home, but I did not understand the process at all. Steps? No, you know, you go to those stores. We have one in Santa Rosa. They, you know, they'll, they'll help you make cheese and beer and wine. And so they sell you all of the things. But it's pretty much like prefab house. You know, they, they right. give you the sides, like the you top, grow your own mushrooms. The, the front door. Yeah. And then you just are kind of putting it together mm-hmm. and following directions. But it's a completely different thing when you're when you're doing what Real life. Niall is doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's interesting with the single origin beers, you literally, like, what's the style what's the recipe it's like there is no recipe there is no style like it's just this ale you know it's kind of a pale ale is kind of where i'm shooting at Mm. something everyone can drink without being like oh i don't like bitter i don't like alcohol i don't like hop aromas like we really want to pronounce this locally grown barley that we grew so you don't really want to cover it up with hops but you also want that essence of hops to be there as kind of you know that crucial personality element so the grain is is the malted barley is is steeped in this mashing process where the the starches are converted to sugars those sugars are then strained off um, or watered off it's called a water ton mash ton water ton are these terms that come up in that process then it goes to the kettle and then you boil these this these sweet sugars that come from the malt um, the mashing process and that's when you add hops and so depending on when you add the hops, it'll determine how bitter it is. Um, the more, the earlier, and the longer um, that you add them, uh, the more bitter it will be. Um, and then aromatically, you would add them at the end. A lot of people add hops in the fermenter and dry hop them prior to packaging. So hops are applied in different places to do different things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a, you know... Uh, bouquet garni, you know, like mm-hmm. where you have that and you're like, that's right. this critical. When you add salt. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, exactly. Yeah, those are such fundamental elements. So, to so okay, I think, so the sugar gets burned off. The sh- no, the, the sugar is left. Yeah, so we're straining, straining the, liquid the liquid out of the mash. So, so now we have the liquid. Yep, and this liquid, we continue to rinse. We and take, you throw out that stuff. It goes to chicken farmers and pig farmers, okay, or comp- so you can compost. Still, you yeah, can still eat that. Yeah, it's still got uh, caloric value. In fact, our brewing system isn't super efficient, so there's quite right. a bit of sugar left over. Oftentimes, and is there alcohol in that product no, at that point? No, no. Okay. So we're gonna take those sugars from that mash and kind of rinse more of the sugars out until we've kind of exhausted any sugars that are around the grain. And now that's in the kettle and that'll boil. And those sugars will react with nitrogen um, that's in the, the, the wort, it's called, uh, the sweet wort or the sugar water. Um, and you'll have these caramelization reactions occur. So um, that adds flavor. It kind of, by boiling, it sanitizes it. Um, it stabilizes uh, 
um, the uh, the tannins and proteins and stuff that are in there. It's kind of like making a stock. You know when you boil a stock and it just it clarifies on you eventually. Like mm. if you didn't really boil your stock very long, it's not going to have that right. nice you know. And they're called hot breaks and cold breaks are like where these proteins, all of them, just fall out and you have this beautifully clear liquid. And um, it this is, is the fun. Is it clear? Is it amber? It's it can be amber. It can be black it could be you know depending on what grains you use wow. to mash with will determine so this is that recipe point you know the mashing processes is a very critical point in your recipe so how many dark malts you add or crystal or caramel malts these are kind of malts that have a little bit more toffee and um, they've been kilned a little bit higher uh, and then of course the roasted malts are malts or barleys that have been roasted uh, like coffee and those will add more the darker roastier coffee or tones mm -hmm. to the to the and beer. people will mix different barleys together to get that that's a recipe technique yep yeah different uh, malted barleys mm -hmm. um and different kind of adjunct malts yeah. um and then of course there's adjuncts like corn and rice and sagorum or millet or buckwheat uh we do a, a blue corn pale ale a malted blue corn pale ale you've had that before yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um and we had to actually source um our first maltster was uh, malt grown well there wasn't growing it was malting blue corn from New Mexico and when we acquired his equipment because uh, he sold us his malting equipment we ended up having to go buy the the blue corn and malt it ourselves so we ended up floor malting the blue corn uh, for our last year's batches in this year's uh, batch so you have to learn how to malt other things wow. um, so anyway let's get back to the brewing process I'll yes. just finish it real quickly so and cool. say that after the boiling process we cool it down as quickly as we can we add yeast and we ferment it and the yeast obviously eats the sugar converts it to CO2 and alcohol a little bit of heat and mm -hmm. some of these flavor elements um, and then after the fermentation all of our beers go to barrel um, where they'll sit for anywhere from a couple weeks to maybe six months or a year. On average, two, mm -hmm. two to three months um, is pretty average for most of our beers in barrel. Um, and it's not there to get sour. It's not there to um, uh, pick up real that much oak tones. Mm -hmm. but it, so it, you're using neutral oak? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We have used new oak too. Uh, but you have to be very careful with that. It's kind of like, you know, overcooking the chicken, I like right. to say. You right. know, it's like you got to get that, taste it, and make sure it doesn't get too oaky. Right. And so, all, so primary fermentation is done in, all of them are done in stainless steel. Yes. And then all of them go into barrel? You don't have any that you are going from? There are a few beers here and there that we've, okay. we've brewed where they haven't gone to barrel. Um, we've done a few Napa ales where it hasn't gone barrel just because again preserving that malt integrity and like that the, just the personality of that beer and that brightness you know this particular batch I think was in barrel for uh, three months and so you're gonna hate me for this question does the barrel need to come from 20 miles like is the cooperage Oh, there you the go. Barrel. There you go. Uh, punch in <laughs> holes in the uh, single origin. I um, know, we're so bad. We'd love to find that. Yeah. Um, I, I'm sure it could be. It it hasn't, and it's there. It's all it's, French I, I oak. It's, it's all okay. Vancouver. So it's a settling vessel. 
you know, mm -hmm. it's kind of like taking that, you know, it's almost like ripening a cheese or something right. like that. You want to, it needs to sit for a little while. Right. And some of those greener beer sort of youthful characters start to fade away. And then there's this other dimension that occurs. Mm -hmm. And the French use the word élevage in mm -hmm. winemaking, which is just, you know, I love these French winemaking terms because they just, they say so much in one little word. Mm -hmm. And uh, the raising of a child, the élevage, the you know, uh, of, of your, your kids, uh, it's kind of like the raising of the, the beer, the raising of the mm -hmm. wine, um, and, and that whole development of the élevage side, um, this aging side, where the harmony of the ingredients start to pop. And then that's when you pull it out of barrel and you, and you bottle it unfiltered on fine, and it takes a couple weeks to carbonate in bottle. So we add a little bit more yeast and a little bit more sugar. We send it to the lab. Um, we get you know basic numbers on everything and sometimes uh, test the um, yeast and bacteria typically looking for Britannomyces mainly um, which is another yeast that we try and avoid in some of our beers. Some of our beers do have Britannomyces in it which is kind of a no-no in the wine world. Yeah. Um, but, so this uh, is a 26.6 ounce bottle? Uh, yes exactly. Yeah. So why do you have any smaller bottles or all your beers are done in this big bottle? Well, we know from wine and other products that the smaller the vessel, um, the faster it ages. Um, and this size bottle, it makes the beer age longer, mm -hmm. uh, hold up better to oxidation. Um, and it also is just, it's a kind of a good serving size, frankly. Oh, it's, it's gorgeous. A lot of pe people would call this a bomber, and there's what we call kind of bomber fatigue, you know, where consumers are, you know, they kind of go through this. We're now in this, like, can renaissance with beer that's prolific. And it for a long time, bombers, these, you know, 22-ounce bottles of beer, very, very common. And, Kind of saturated the market and and then eventually you know obviously six packs are, all, are always there but people do want smaller vessels to drink from um we just this is our vessel of choice mm -hmm. because of the swing top on right, it um it allows you to take uh, a couple pours and then put it back in the fridge and drink it a few days later and uh and it holds up better um and it's all—it's the same amount of work for us to do a smaller bottle as right. it would be to this, but it's kind of there's a balancing act between ageability right. and. Well, I'm uh, glad you yeah. said that because I didn't really <clears throat> think that you could drink it a couple days later. Mm -hmm. Do you have to gas it or anything? <clears throat> no, it's uh, the sea. That's the yeah. <clears throat> if the bottle's about half full, it's mm -hmm. yeah, just it's just letting CO2 out. Now, if the bottle's a third full or a quarter right. full, there ain't much there. Right. So right. it's it's gonna fill that space and it's gonna be kind of flat if you mm -hmm. wait too long. So, and does the flavor somewhat stay the same within a few pretty days? close? Yeah. It's just like wine, you know. Yeah, it's of course cool. you kept it cold because mm -hmm. um, it's beer, um, uh, but yeah, so it's. Uh, I mean, yeah. I think there's a historical context too with this sort of packaging. And people, number one, let me say that beer drinkers don't have a problem drinking 22 ounces. Um, so I think this is, I mean, it looks like a big beer, but I think, especially with the enclosure, what do you, is there a specific name for that enclosure? I just call it a swing top. Mm -hmm. And for those of you out there that, that, you know, we'll post a picture on Instagram, but you can see it's those. Like if uh, like Chimay beer, Grolsch, uh, Grolsch, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. it, Fisher, it's got the little swing top, so yeah. you can, it's got, mm -hmm. and the little rubber thing, so you can seal it again, and it's got a really nice seal to it. 
Um, yeah, it's a costly package, and it's definitely from the supplier side that we, you know, have moved around a little bit, and it's definitely challenging. It's costly, but it's a really beautiful package. It's stunning. And well, that's the other thing too is with this packaging. I think if you shrunk it anymore, you're losing. To me, it would lose the visual. De lose detail. Yeah, I like the size of it because you really—it's beautiful labels. Yeah, there's a lot of content on the labels, and so yeah, let's talk we've, about we've struggled that. with that. You know, in the initial design of this, you know, we didn't hire a design company. You know, as winemakers, we kind of knew what we wanted. We we knew that my wife Whitney Fisher, she thought of the fable idea. We have two kids, Madeline and Fritz, that's the name of the beer. Mm -hmm. um, and it was kind of like we had this La Fontaine book that her mother gave us, uh, uh, French interpretations of Aesop's fables, and uh, we were reading them to the kids and we were just kind of talking about them. And, and when we were starting the brewery and Whitney said, well, why don't we call the beer why don't we name the beers after fables i'm like that's yeah, a great Madeline idea and, yeah, so cute. and um so every beer you know obviously the napa ale isn't because it's a right. it's kind of a different uh label um and but, so who <clears throat> where do the engravings do you have an artist um the original fable uh fables that we used are all done by mostly francis barlow and he was around in the 18th uh, 17th century so the original um, printings were from 1687. So if you look on the back label, um, you know, it's all public domain. Right. So I found them online. <clears throat> but I, I eventually was so curious about this Francis Barlow and the original printings because some of the stuff online, just the resolution wasn't good. And, right. and I thought, God, it sure would be neat to own this book. And so I just, you know how powerful the internet collecting. is. Mm -hmm. You start looking around and before I knew it, I reached out to this guy in Manhattan Rare Books, which is an awesome website. If you're interested in art or books um, in general, uh, there are some amazing stuff at manhattanbooks.com. And the, uh, the gentleman there was uh, super helpful and he was like, no, that, that old posting, what, that was original printing, and that book sold, you know, and I'm like, oh, it's probably out of my price range anyway, you know, a book from mm -hmm. the 17th century. Right. Um, so time went by, and about two years ago, I was kind of back on the internet, kind of, I don't know when, late night or something, surfing. clearly after I was drinking a beer, probably, right. um, <laughs> and surfing around, and I came across, you know, this second printing and I sent this guy a link to it. And he said, yeah, I don't know. It's coming from a dodgy source. I, you know, it doesn't, this, these things don't add up. So <clears throat> I'm like, thanks so much for, you know, just checking into that. It sounded too good to be true. Mm -hmm. and, and the price was like $500 or something. Mm -hmm. And so it's, anyway, um, a couple months go by and he, he reaches out to me and said, hey, um, a colleague of mine was just in France and he, I, I recently got a hold of this, a second printing of the Francis Barlow's, you know, fables, you know, would you like, would you like, to, you know, here's some pictures of it, you know, are you interested? And I just jumped out of my seat. I was just, I couldn't wow. believe it. Um, so I, um, I did say yes. And I just tried to negotiate the price down and then, you know, 
kind of gave him a deposit so he wouldn't sell it and, right. until I had enough money to scrape together to buy it. Um, so we ended up acquiring a 300-year-old book, uh, uh, not a 400, but a 300-year-old reprint uh, of, of Aesop's Fables. And so we now have the images, if you go into the tap room, you'll see enlarged versions of, of some of his original uh, of these uh, fables, and so we've used some of them, uh, and, and it's it's just awesome. Well, it's I mean, nice you have like a huge amount of options mm -hmm. moving forward. Yeah, a lot. Often people are like, we have forty-five some different beers, mm -hmm. and they're all in rotation. There's no flagship beers, meaning we don't make the same beers all the time or have them always available. They come and they go, uh, as you know. Um, and people are always all, when are you going to run out of fables? Are you going to run out of fables or run out of beers? You know, what's right. going to happen first? Because there's so many fables. Um, and I think there's like a hundred or something in Francis Barlow's book. Mm. And uh, it's, I think we're going to run out of beers before we run out of fables. fables. So, guess, so did, we got through the whole process. We bottled it and we labeled it. Yeah. And... People, I mean, right now, are you distributed outside of California? We are in a few unique places. Uh, it's funny, we're in Utah because we go there. Um, mm -hmm. So, but oftentimes our beers aren't, they can be somewhere, but they're not listed. They're almost like kind of secret. Uh -huh. um, uh, places like um, the Geranium Restaurant in Copenhagen. Uh -huh. um, That's phenomenal. Got, uh, did a, they purchased some beer through our um, exporter who it only went there really and uh, and then they recently wanted a custom beer made with geranium uh. and thyme and so I did uh, a beer for them with with a, I think it was two different geraniums and about three different times I hope you went over there and drank your beer not yet not not yet I, I, need to. I haven't eaten there but it's a phenomenal restaurant yeah have you been to Noma yeah I mean, that seems like that's yeah. the, the fellow that I does their fermentation. I don't mean to say it like that. I don't mean to go, yeah, of course I have. Uh, but yeah, I have. <laughs> <laughs> Take um, out at Noma? No. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that, it's a fascinating, yeah, on all those levels. But that, that is, that's really cool. When we were in Brussels, <clears throat> um, I have this mad crush on this guy, the chef, Sergio Herman. Mm -hmm. And he has a branch of atelier frites mm. french fry shops whoa oh and, you were telling me about yeah, this yeah and it's all marble and brass and it's like posh we, and we're, we don't know how this guy makes money yeah no <laughs> the I, stores sure are like either. so beautiful so and beautiful, everything's new and marble and classic big. but They're he's selling big. fries yeah how much are they are they expensive they weren't no seven euros eight yeah. euros 12 euros i mean it was there a line or? there's a line you, yeah. fast casual you order but the place i thought it was going to be really small but it was quite large. Huh. I mean, it's so not just French fries, right? No, I mean, uh, there's French fries. There's a salad. I think they have one burger. Um, but there's like mm. fries with this on top, and there's uh, some croquettes. Oh. And then they have these huge urns that are pressure, that pressure pumped. Mm -hmm. That you get your exact like one and a half ounces of aioli out of each of them. Oh, Truffle yeah, nice. aioli and. Mm. Um, Harissa Ioli. I mean, it was wow. fabulous. And the fries were good. We were worried because it's not like, you know, so that was the first fries. But I brought that up because I ordered a gin and tonic and the tonic came. It was Fever Tree uh -huh. with Sergio's name on it. 
signed, and it was a Clementine cinnamon tonic that he had made for his... And I love that. I'm like, oh, I want a Sandra Bernstein tonic. Yeah. I don't think I'm going to get it. I don't think we use tonic enough. Now, do you remember that Niall made a specific beer for the restaurant? Yes, but I don't remember what it was now. He basically... We picked lemon verbena out of the Oh, the imagery farm. And... Uh, I don't know if it was the imagery farm or if it was that Fat Pilgrim. Because I remember I was picking it. I have a feeling it was Fat Pilgrim. Really? I have a feeling it was imagery. Really? Maybe you're right. I thought it was Maybe Sage. Right. So it was Wasn't it Sage? Oh, you oh, might be right. It was, it was Sage. sage. And, and you basically kind of dry hopped it. You kind of dry hopped the mm-hmm. Sage. We did, a, we did it in the kettle. We did it on the hot side, as that's called. And then we also did it in the, uh, in the bright beer tank. So, yeah, we yeah. kind of dry saged it, too. Um, and that was with the Weizenbach, and that was right. uh, really popular. A lot of people yeah. liked that. That was fun. Sage infused. Yeah, yeah it was like that purple was sage yeah. or something. So we yeah, haven't we're done all, that in the past. I mean, you're making so many unique things. We're happy and, to do it, you know. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the things because our batches are small. Uh, these collaborations, you know, there's a lot of the kind of collaborations happening between brewery and brewery, and mm-hmm. and. Uh, I don't know, I, you know, people get together and they make up a recipe and then they dump the ingredients in and I kind of think, yeah, I mean, that sounds okay, right. you know, but I'm super inspired by chefs and by, <coughs> by psalms because mm-hmm. they're the ones with these ideas. They're interfacing with their products that they're serving and they're like, I have this idea, This, how do I get this beverage to kind of integrate or come, you know, like you just want to bring this whole family together and... Um, those those uh, collaborations are a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And we've done rhubarb and rose hips uh, with a restaurant at Meadowood. Mm-hmm. We've done uh, um, what was it? Um, mustard. Um, God, what else is? We in did there? one for Thomas Keller too, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, the cacao nib. Yeah, cacao oh, nib brown wow. ale. Yeah, so they've got a bean to bar. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, chocolate, chocolate uh, factory and uh, down in Napa and so we got some Ecuadorian chocolate nibs mm. or kind of shells oh, I guess it wasn't quite nibs you know how the yeah. shells tend to have um, some of the nibs still on there mm-hmm. so we use that in the mash again it's kind of about adding a dimension without it overtaking the beer right. and so you know you've it had this chocolate subtle. quarters and you're kind of like ooh, it just tastes yeah. like chocolate syrup or right. chocolate beer and it's like eh, I, subtlety I think is power yeah. powerful can we talk about glassware? Sure. I mean, these are high-end beers. They, uh, let's talk. Let's talk about pricing first. I mean, I remember purchasing the kegs. They're, they were basically three times the amount of a, a normal, traditional, conventional beer that you were getting. These bottles are retailing for how much in um, in your tap room, or, or if they're even, are they even available at? Any yep, at the tap. Level? No, so no off-premise, so no retail. You yeah. can't. You know, we, we just know with our product that um, it, it's, you really need to experience it and to come see us and taste it before you commit, I think, to a 27 or $32 bottle of beer. You see something like that on a shelf, you might be curious, but it just, it may, it's hard, I think, for the consumer to be like, oh yeah, I want that. They, they're right. coming in to buy a beer and they're probably going to buy something they purchased before. They want a six pack of some uh, cans or they want some IPA or they're, you know, I call them kind of, for lack of a better term, but kind of more mainstream beer. You know, mm-hmm. I like to say Mad Fritz is not mainstream beer. No. This is kind of a, uh, an obscure sort of uh, obsessional sort of 
you know, beer that has. Yeah, it's, um, an art, it's an artistic. Yeah. yeah. So what, like, what is average price of the twenty-two ounce bottles that you're selling? Uh, well, the beer, the, Na- the Napa Ale is, uh, yeah, all the beers are 26 and a half ounces, uh, 785 mils. Um, the Napa Ale is tw- 32.50. So the beers that are take like extreme measures to both malt, um, source hops from these local uh, hop growers. I mean, we're paying top dollar. Then we have to take the hops and dry them mm-hmm. in our kiln. So our malt kiln becomes a hop kiln. So we have a beer called our Osthouse Ale. You oh. may have had Osthouse in the past. Well, I, I like the idea that actually, if, you ch- if you're changing up what we're getting, mm-hmm. then people that are in town or regulars that are having a chance to taste the beers on mm-hmm. tap that they're actually getting a chance to go through some of the portfolio, which is exactly cool. Exactly. And, you know, some of the more, we make fairly traditional styles um, of beer, so, but they're definitely with the Mad Fritz twist and, and with the origin side to it. Um, when it comes to glassware and serving this, though, it's definitely, I like to say, beer in a wine glass. You know, like, this is, you can put it in a pint glass. Heck, you can do whatever you want once right. you buy it. It's up to you. But if you were to ask me, I'd say put it in bold stemware, put it in a white wine glass, um, you know, something that is going to illuminate the aromatics of, this, right. of, of these beers because that way you'll really get a sense of the terroir, the personality, the aromatics. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be a little bit brighter. And, you know, maybe you don't need to drink a whole pint, you know, right. drink five, ten ounces. And, right. And that's what's nice about the swing top. Close well, it back up and... You know, something to be said, you know, spend a little bit more and have less quantity of it mm-hmm. and, you know, enjoy, you know, enjoy the quality. Yeah, I always like to say it's not how much we make, it's right. what we make. You know, and people are like, well, how much beer do you make? And we've grown, you know, every year we grow a little bit, right. but we're still so tiny um, in production. Uh, that it, you know, it is. It's more about what we're making and not getting caught up in like we've got to grow or we want to get right. to this size. It's really like, what are we doing? Where is this coming from? Right. Like, how do we build our local communities and our farmers? And uh, that's really kind of at the core of Mad Fritz. I like to say is kind of building this community of farmers. You know, helping them, paying them top right. dollar for Which, the grain. Yeah. Uh, Mendocino Grain yeah. Project, uh, the Sonoma Hop Growers Alliance folks, we've got growers in Napa, and building these relationships. Uh, we use the bale grist mill mm. to mill our blue corn and our mm. Sonoran wheat. We also have some uh, purple uh, tinge uh, emmer wheat we're yeah. going to work with soon for our local origins, mm. farmer's ale. So, you know, you kind of have to open your mind a little bit to these other opportunities and, and really kind of dig Put, dig your heels in and, and go after that. Um, and that's in some ways why we haven't really focused on making more beer, getting it more out there. It's like our attention is really building a, a, yeah. this this community of farmers. Well, I, bring, I only bring up the price because I, I really w- I want people to understand when I'm talking about glassware that it's an experience drinking these beers. Right. It's not a normal everyday thing. You're chugging, not grabbing you're it, opening it, and drinking it out of the bottle. That, right. um, and, and I assume that Niall probably had a desired vessel for for serving and i think wine glass is how we did it at the grown right. big when we did i think it. we still do and that's yeah. what we do at um at the fairmont as well we when we serve we've got a, a few beers um uh, matt fritz being one of them that we that we serve in wine glasses and then what i do is keep it on ice 
um, right next to the table and then just continue to pour until the, the guest says, you know, that they Should it, do you like it really, really cold? I mean, do you have a preferred temperature or like maybe a little less cold than you would a regular beer? I think, you know, I get people asking the questions, well, how long does this beer age? You know, how should I store it? How should I serve it? You know, all those are, you know, certainly, you know, personal. very, you know, they're personal. But I think in general, the beer ages six to nine months in the bottle. So quite a while, but usually peaks at about three to four months uh, after the bottling date, which is printed on the side of the bottle. Every bottle is the actual bottling date um, so it's really up to the consumer to decide you know when they want to consume it um, although keeping it upright so the yeast settles because they're all naturally you know bottle fermented uh, even out of the keg they're also cast conditioned so they're it's all natural carbonation there isn't it, we're not putting infusing in, yeah. co2 in at all so a very old world in that in that regard as far as temperature goes i'd say you know make it's cold you know cold. it's beer yeah. serve it cold it will warm up i mean who likes warm flat beer right, right. um right. so you know eventually it'll warm up um and i i do think one of our you know, one of the things when we open the tap room one of the goals that i'm as we train people and have people working there it's like that that point of pouring the beer is that last act you know it should be every if we can make a perfect pour of mad fritz every time whether it's three ounces or five ounces or whatever like that pour is critical and so i i really you know i always want to emphasize that it's like the perfect pour i think we put a special tap at the girl in the fig uh, mm-hmm. you know we put replace the taps and right. just making sure that these cast condition beers are delivered right. the best they can possibly be right. and do you when you serve the beer do you want for there to be a little head on it absolutely and i think that the when you t- drink a beer and you pour a beer uh, for any beer not necessarily ours but i think when you get that confluence uh, in the synergy between the foam and the liquid and you can take a sip and get a little of that foam in your mouth along with the, the product you really get a sense for that beer it's the aromatics that come from the foam it's almost like it's delicious just I mean just think about you know just tasting or drinking the foam and it's delicious um, and so you get a lot of flavor in that foam so I think that that's critical a little bit of foam it's kind of that German sort of yeah. Uh, well, you know I, who t- stopped me one day was Augie Bush, who mm-hmm. was staying at the Four Seasons um, like from Bush. in Hawaii, from Anheuser-Busch. Oh. And when they would come stay for a week out of the year, they would, you know, anyone that wanted their beer, you were told just to bring it to them and then just add it, put it on a tab. Um, and <clears throat> he saw us serving some beers, and we were, you know, pouring right up into the top, and there wasn't a head, and he stopped, and he pulled me over wow. to the bar and said, and he pulled a beer, and he said, this is how I want it. And he wanted, it was about an inch and a half or something mm-hmm. of head on it. And and we all thought, well, but if we do that, some people are going to be upset right, thinking they're that not they're getting, not getting their beer. Not. He said, if they say anything, then you let them have a little bit, and then you take it back and you put a little more beer in the glass and give it to them. But he said, that head is so important for the aromatics. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a really important thing to him. There are some people, so there's a concept that is gone around more recently but it's it's an old concept it's called a slow pour pilsner Mm -hmm. um and the idea is you literally are like pouring 
out of a certain style faucet and you get so much foam mm -hmm. that it traps the beer underneath the foam and you and it takes you a while to pour the beer because it's so foamy so these mm -hmm. are highly carbonated pilsners um, that by the time they're finished pouring there's literally a souffle coming out of the wow. top of wow. the glass yeah. like it looks like a glacial souffle like or a, or a, what do you call them not a flan but um uh with the egg white um um what a, for me souffle is perfect we serve yeah. souffles at the restaurant yeah. and they they come you know they're like four inches out of the yeah. thing that we're cooking yeah. them in and it, it's like a little hat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so there's that and then there's this other thing where, you know, they say there's three different ways you can pour a beer. You can pour the beer and then finish with foam and then you can pour the beer kind of more laminar and smooth and then serve it or you can for, pour the foam first and then trap the beer underneath right. and then finish it and, you know, some people would say like those three beers are going to taste different which i think is a little bit out there but um you know just how you poured it right. uh but certainly there is something to the foam i'd say yeah. and 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 getting that that flavor of the beer well, it's similar like having the crema on a, an espresso I mean, yeah it makes a difference yeah. so do we have a beer club we do we have a membership uh we started in september of 2014 uh when we were just uh it was literally our lifeline that allowed us to stay open because uh, we put everything into this mm -hmm. and uh, it was just, you know, it's still, you know, husband and wife owned. We don't have uh, any banks or any loans, you know, we're just, we're very husband and wife, you know, owner operated, um, passion driven, uh, six and nine. So, yeah, I was just into the, I just went into the fig, took the kids to train town, uh, and then I, I, I texted uh, Jonathan, uh, I was like, hey, can you get me a table, you know? <laughs> so the kids, we got a burger and Perfect. lemonades and, mm -hmm. you know, did the, um, I loved your coloring, yep, yep, yep. Mm -hmm. the cool coloring books that you have there mm -hmm. were awesome. Yes. The yeah. kids wanted to take them home, which Good. is kind of a rarity, you know, like yeah. you go. Oh, that's awesome. So, um and uh, so how many shipments does someone get so the way it works is uh we open the the wait list to new members every few months usually about three we used to do it twice a year now we're, we're going to open them up uh every three months because it, people so ended up waiting list. we have a waiting list until we just can't make any more we're definitely getting there to a point where we wow. can't handle m much more uh, but we have attrition too. So right. just like any club, right. people come in. We do have probably, I don't know, 50 or 60 members that have been there since the beginning. Wow. Um, so pretty good hold rate, you know. But in general, a couple of years, people mm -hmm. are in and out. And so right. three bottles a quarter. So you pay for a case in Futures, uh, two cases in Futures, which would be six bottles every quarter, two of each beer. Um, and then four of each beer would be a case every quarter. That's four cases. That's kind of the top tier. So the price goes down per bottle based right. on your membership level. Uh, you know, obviously four cases of beer uh, a year, it's a lot. Um, but it's, if you think about it, that's 48 bottles uh, one a week. I mean, yeah. it's right. not that people much, but, you know, that. some people can do that. Um, and I well, certainly can. People that entertain or give gifts and yeah, and that's kind of how that works out. So yeah, we'll do those memberships and those. You s subscribe or renew once a year. And can you get it if you're outside of California? Um, technically, no. yes. Okay. Yeah, okay, cool. you can. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, you have to kind of take care of the shipping yourself. Right. We don't ship. Right. Um, so we make the so beer. So you're in there, you come, you sign up. And yeah, and we and and we can point you in the right direction for right. for folks that can that you can you can handle mm-hmm. the shipping yourself. Right. Um, but in general, yeah, that's that's, great. that's been fun for us because we make you know unique beers and we have we can offer them to the members, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know certainly keeps us busy. Yeah, I bet. So um, as we're, kind, I think we have to kind of wrap. Up. Is there anything we should? We should have talked about that we didn't. Uh, we have our fifth year anniversary coming up. Oh, that's um, great! At the Vale Gristmill, wow. uh, so in St. Helena, kind of between St. Helena and uh, Calisog. If you haven't been there, um, Napa Valley State Parks runs uh, this along with the Open Space uh, District in Napa Valley. Uh, manages the Vale Gristmill, uh, which is the one of the few remaining. Uh, operating grist mills west of the Mississippi so these old French quartzite stones and it takes some money to keep this place up and so we wanted them to be a beneficiary and because we use awesome. these these old mill this old these old grinding stones to mill some of our grain Ooh, and we donate so cool. yeah, yeah it's it's so a wonderful when, experience when is that? if when you is the party? Uh, August 3rd from 1 to 5 um, it's called Mad Firkin Fest uh, M A D F R I-F-I-R-K-I-N-F-E-S-T dot com is the website. So all the information, the tickets, mm-hmm. everything's there. Um, so, yeah, we're just, uh, we just kind of launched it to members, but it's it's accessible. You can hop on the Internet and look okay. at it and get a feel for it. Both a park is right next to it. So, you, you know, people camping, camping out yeah, there's people that have already kind of booked in. And so that weekend, nice. obviously, high time in Napa Valley. And then uh-huh. we're, you know, we're literally, you know, have uh, 15 different breweries from around the country coming. Wow. Um, what is the food deal? The food now, we're using a local guy. I mean, we'd certainly love to talk to you if well, you're I interested. Well, I don't know if we're free. <laughs> yeah, so I know. Up. August 3rd. <laughs> it's a dang I'm, Saturdays. I'm curious. Um, yeah, so uh, Josh Mitchell of Napa Valley Heritage Catering, he helps us out Great. with our pickup That's days. Awesome. So if you're a member, you come to the brewery to pick up your beer, and we do uh, pickup days, and mm-hmm. he's been doing small bites for that. Um, so And he has a pig farm uh, just in Calistoga. Mm-hmm. So... We're, we're wanting to do that. Uh, he's going to be, you know, doing a whole hog and sliders nice. and oysters and we'll have sour beers. And um, Firkins are uh, an old English uh, measurement for like a, a barrel that you'd serve mm-hmm. out of. Um, typically about 10.2 gallons, I think 10.4 gallons maybe. Um, but th- they're also smaller ones that are five gallons. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of the brewers will be pouring out of Firkins. So again, kind of awesome. going back in so time, fun. you know. Yeah. Kind of at the historic Bale Gris Mill will be running uh, during the festival. We'll have um, Poor Man's Whiskey will be playing. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's it's food it like and beer and yeah. uh, kind of a way to give back. And you can hike mm-hmm. in too as an option. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of the biggest, probably the biggest yeah, news awesome. we have going on. Yeah. And so MadFritz.com. Mm-hmm. MadFritz.com. MadFritzCast. Instagram at MadFritz. Brewing is our Instagram handle, so we're always posting pictures of, you know, new beers that are out in the tap room. The tap room's open uh, Thursday through Monday right now. We're hoping to open up on Tuesdays. Uh, we'll probably stay closed on Wednesdays, but 12:30 to 6. You know, we're not a bar. You right. know, 
uh, vinyl, no TVs or anything in there. It's cool. all about the beer and uh, By good. Appointment only. Uh, no, no, you we're can oh, that's you can just great. drop in, oh, yeah. Sorry. And that's what the tap room really allowed us. That was the thing yeah. that happened last year. Last year, I was like determined to make a really good gluten-free beer and open the tap room. Right. And you <laughs> it was, did it. We did it. Yeah, and we got those job. two. Now this year, it's like pull off this Firkin Fest. It's, yeah. uh, this Firkin Fest. <laughs> well, it's so so awesome to have you with yeah, us. Thank it's, you. Um, I learned so much. I think our our listeners are going to enjoy this yeah, episode for sure. quite a bit. And you want to get a shout out to the to your wine? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes. Yeah. So um, by the way, he makes killer wine. If yeah, if you're curious about um, mountain grapes and Cabernet Sauvignon, we also make a little Sangiovese and Nebbiolo up there on Pritchard Hill, which is on the eastern mountains at about 1,200 feet elevation. Uh, near Lake Hennessee, kind of middle of the valley, um, is David Arthur Vineyards. And uh, they've been there since 1980, um, in 85, first vintage. Uh, David Long and Laura Long and and, and the crew there. Um, They're wonderful family and wonderful people to work with and for. Uh, So this will be my 12th vintage coming up. And uh, when you come up and taste, it's certainly by appointment, but... They're just, it's a fun place to go. Good people, you know, you can't go wrong. And the wines, I mean, they speak of place, you know, and they're all organic grapes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got that on the label now. And, um, and it's just a lot of soul, you know. It's Very all about cool. not messing it up, making the wines mm-hmm. straight from that property and, and serving it to you in the glass. And, um, awesome. and, and so it's, it's a magical place. Um, and obviously Fisher Vineyards, my wife's family uh, winery, uh, up there on the Mayakamas, so kind of Sonoma side of Spring Mountain, mm-hmm. uh, is uh, Fisher, and they've been there since 1973. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they have a property in Napa as well, so they do Napa and Sonoma. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, I love their, their mountain wines are just mm-hmm. phenomenal. I mean, they're all the wines are good. I'm obviously completely biased. Um, <laughs> but, and, and a lot of people are like, who's the better winemaker? And we, we kind of nod our heads and do Neither of no, us. You don't need to be better. It's it's all Spiriety about place. Variety is the spice of life. Yeah, and a state having something that's a state grown and made is the kind of pinnacle in my mind right. of wine. It's right. um, you control. get a control right. personality. This is where terroir has an opportunity to show. Right. Well, thank you. And what an amazing day it would be to go do a wine tasting to try his wines and then go over and try the beers. Yeah, that I would don't, be I don't fun. know that you can do that with anyone else over Seriously, there. Seriously, that yeah. would be very fun. That's very cool. Yeah. Well, you're always welcome. <laughs> okay. Thank you for having, uh, thank you having me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, Sandra, good to see you. Welcome back to the States. I know you're taking off in a few days again, <laughs> so we're just kind of stopping off to see the dog. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Niall, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Always been in love with the uh, with the beers, and it's I'm, I'm glad that I moved to a spot where we still are uh, working with the Matt Fritz. Thank you. I look forward yeah. to uh, catching up with you over there uh, soon, and, you know, don't be a stranger. Yeah, and, uh, yeah I am going to come out. I want to come out. I think we should get the staff out. Yes, and do a staff tasting. And if yeah. you would like to think about some collaboration with your okay. your team too, you know, cool. put that in their minds as okay. they when they come, and uh, we'll we'll, oh, we'll do fun. a brain uh, a beer brain collaboration. Uh, I don't know how there's not a fig beer. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. I know. All right. 
All right, well, if you want to uh, download episodes, you can always go to radiomisfits.com and find us there. You can go to thebikegoeson.com. We've got a listing as well as some really nice photos. You can follow us on Instagram as well. we'll go, I'm going to post some pictures of the, um, uh, of course, of Nile and some of the beers that we had here today. And uh, we look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you very much.